0: Well, good evening, church. My name is Joe. I am one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to the passage that was just read, John chapter 19, verses 16 to 42. That's where we're going to be. Um, and tonight is Good Friday. It's the night where we take a step back and we look into the crucifixion of Jesus. Not that the cross is something that, that we ignore the rest of the year. In fact, Uh, Every day we live in light of the cross. Uh, Every day we allow the sacrifice of Jesus to inform every little part of our lives. However, today is the day we focus in specifically on Jesus' suffering on a Roman cross almost 2,000 years ago. And more than that, more than than his suffering on the Roman cross, even worse than, than what he suffered, even worse than all the physical pain that he suffered from the nails and the scourging and, and, and the beating and all of that. Even worse than all of that was the fact that he bore our penalty for sin, which was the wrath of God being poured out on him. There are so many aspects of the cross and, and sacrifice that we can look at, but, but I believe the gospel writer John and, and how he unpacks this story of the, the crucifixion that he wants us to look at it through the lens of God's plan. More specifically, through the lens of the sovereignty of God. Now, you might hear this word sovereign a lot, uh, especially if you're in and around the church quite a bit, but it's a big word. I had to look it up in Webster's dictionary to try to figure out what it meant. Um, but, but I think it's important that we define what, what sovereignty is. And I think a working definition that I think of when I think of sovereignty is that God is in control. There, there is absolutely nothing in the universe that happens outside of his authority or his influence. Let me say that in a different way. There is nothing in the universe that happens without him allowing it or directly affecting it. Nothing in the universe happens outside of his authority or his influence. He is always present, all-knowing, and all-powerful. God has never lost control at any point in all of eternity. Now, usually, when we hear about the sovereignty of God, we hear it within the context of, like, good situations, right? We generally don't hear about the sovereignty of God in bad situations. We hear about it when a friend goes in for a checkup, just a random checkup. They went in and all of a sudden the doctor found cancer and they, they found it early enough that it could be eradicated and it could be treated. Uh, we, we hear about the sovereignty of God when the swerving car just misses us on the interstate or, or when you get that job that you've been praying for or, or get accepted to that school you never thought that you would get accepted to. When you find a parking spot in the actual parking lot at City Light Church. When Scott Frost comes back home to coach the Nebraska Cornhuskers. God is sovereign, amen? But the reality is, is that God, yes, he is sovereign over the good things. But not only is he sovereign over the good things, but he's sovereign over the bad things as well. And tonight I want to look at the cross as proof. That God is in full control. Even when the cancer isn't treatable, even when the car does take you out, even when you don't get the job, even when Mike Riley is the coach at Nebraska. I'm sorry, he's a good guy, good guy. That was uncalled for, I apologize. So, going back to that day, the good we see in the cross was not evident at all on the day that Jesus died. All his followers saw was tragedy and defeat and humiliation. What they saw ahead of them, in front of them, was a life of scorn because the one that they thought would conquer ended up being conquered. At the end of the first Good Friday, it sure seemed anything but good. But having read the rest of the story, we know that there was a plan. And so tonight I want us to see through the cross a plan that was in place well before that. Well before that night. A plan that was always in place. In fact, this plan was in place before the creation of the world. This is not plan B. This is plan A. A plan God revealed to us through prophets for hundreds and hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years before this night. And church, what I hope we walk away with tonight is not just a realization of the penalty that was paid, although that is very important, but I hope that we walk away with confidence. Confidence that God is who he says he is. Confidence in the things that he does in and through us, and ultimately, confidence in his plan for redemption that has happened and that will happen. So the title for my sermon tonight is The Good, the Bad, and the Sovereign. So let's go ahead and jump in. There are three truths from this text that I pray will comfort you and encourage you tonight. And the first is this. God is sovereign over the details. God is sovereign over the details. In tonight's passage on the crucifixion that Christine read, John is showing us the tremendous pain and sorrow that Jesus is going through. But in the midst of that, he is showing us that God is in control the whole time. Four times in in, in this half of a chapter, we see John directly quote that Scripture was fulfilled. And then many, many times we see indirectly that John is pointing to things that also fulfilled Scripture. John is showing us that God is in control on this chaotic and tragic day, down to the smallest detail. And so I thought it would just be helpful for us to see some of that. It would be helpful to just unpack a little bit of that. And so I'm going to take the next five minutes or so walking through five prophecies that we see directly fulfilled in this passage that we have today. Five prophecies in five minutes. Somebody time me. Yell at me. Throw something at me. If I go over, no, don't do that. That would be socially awkward. Please don't throw anything at me. I promise that I will go quickly. So let's go ahead and jump in. Number one, Jesus the king would be lifted up. Jesus himself prophesied this in John three fourteen to 15. And he said this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So in Numbers 21.9, we see that all of Israel were, were infested with these poisonous snakes and they were bitten. And so God had Moses lift up this serpent and everyone who looked at this serpent would be saved. And so Jesus is saying, just like that, I will be lifted up and everyone who looks upon me will be saved. So we see that directly fulfilled in verses 18 to 20 in chapter 19 tonight. And they say this, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the the king of the Jews. Jesus was crucified and lifted up, fulfilling the thing that he said would happen. All right, number two, casting lots for his clothing. Casting lots for his clothing. This comes from Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. That says, "...they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." And then we see this fulfilled in verses 23 and 24 of our text tonight, and it says this, "...when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom." So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which comes from Psalm twenty-two eighteen. 18. It wasn't irony or circumstance that Jesus had a one-piece tunic on that night. It was something God had predicted almost a thousand years before that. All right, number three. He was given sour wine to drink. This comes from Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. And we see this fulfilled in chapter 19, verses 29 to 30, which says this. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All right, number four. Number four. Jesus' side would be pierced, but no bones would be broken. This is actually two separate separate prophecies that uh, are, are fulfilled in the same circumstance. So the first one comes from Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. This is the Passover lamb. These are instructions for the Passover lamb that Jesus said he was the Passover lamb. So he's putting himself in this place, and it says this. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. The bones would not be broken. Then in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem of spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look at me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so we look to to verses 32 to 34, and it says this, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. All right, last one. Jesus also gets buried in a rich man's tomb. This comes from Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We see this fulfilled in verses 38 to 42, where a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who Matthew said was a very rich man, came, took Jesus down from the cross, which they don't do. They usually leave the body up there, but he came and took the body down and placed it in his own tomb, in a rich man's tomb. Now, I just read five prophecies directly fulfilled there. Not sure if anyone timed me, let me know how I did after this. Six minutes, dang it, so close. Five prophecies, but there are about 28 prophecies that are fulfilled in the crucifixion alone. That's not to say anything about his birth or his life or his resurrection. 28 prophecies on the one day of the crucifixion. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a follower of Christ, perhaps you've got doubts about faith or the divinity of Jesus. Is Jesus actually God, like he said, or did he actually even say that? Fulfilled prophecies serve as compelling evidence that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. He said he was God, and all of these prophecies fulfilled confirm that episodes in the life of Jesus that were predicted, hundreds, and in some cases even over a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, come to fruition in very specific detail. Something supernatural is at play. Now, we might say, as as we hear this and read this and see this, well, of course, God is sovereign in the life of Jesus. That is his son. But what about me? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Just God, God is just as sovereign over the minute details of your life as he was of the details of the life of his son. There is nothing that is done that he does not influence or allow. In fact, he knows much more about your every single moment than you ever will. And this matters to us tonight because we have to know what is unseen, church. We have to see the things that are unseen. We have to know the reality of who is in control at all times. We can fall into believing that, that we have an indifferent God, that, that we're on our own and, and, and we have this life to control on our own. But through the cross, Jesus is showing us that we have a personal God that cares about every little bit of us. He's aware of your financial situation, He's aware of your, your feelings of loneliness and hopelessness. He is aware of your recent breakup and your broken heart. He is aware of the bitterness that your spouse has towards you. He is aware, church, and He cares. And so this leads us to our next big truth. Not only is God sovereign over the details, God's sovereignty is comforting. So if we know that God is in control and is completely sovereign, should that actually be comforting to us? Like, if we know he is in complete control, should we, should we be comforted by that? If we're honest, most of us, including myself, do not like being out of control. We don't like being the one that's not in control. I hate riding in the passenger seat of a car, just ask my wife, because I'm not in control. She nods, yes, she can confirm that. I've, I've flown with so many people who are super nervous and, and grabbing the sides of their chairs the whole time because they have absolutely no control over the situation. Pastor Cameron might be one of those people, I'm just throwing that out there. But what we see in the text here is that God is both sovereign and good. He is both sovereign and good. And that is extremely comforting. Let me show you this in the text. Look with me at chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now we need to dig into the context of this a little bit just to see why this is a good and, and comforting thing. First, remember that Jesus said he would be lifted up. Just like Moses lifted up the, serp- the serpent in Exodus, Jesus would also be lifted up. However, the Jews, who were the leaders in in, in trying to get Jesus executed. Remember, it was not the Romans that were searching for Jesus. It it wasn't them that were looking for him, but it was the Jews that were behind this, the Jewish leaders. Well, their primary custom for putting people to death was stoning. And so if the Jews had gone through with their primary custom for, for execution, Jesus would have been beaten down instead of lifted up. However, they manipulated the Romans and Pontius Pilate into executing Jesus because they didn't want his blood on their hands. And so, because the Romans were the ones that carried out the execution, he was actually lifted up just like he said he would be. Now, he's also lifted up by a road where everyone ...can see him as they come into Jerusalem. And people are coming in from all over the region... ...because this weekend is Passover... ...when a a mass exodus of people uh, come into Jerusalem. And so a lot of people would have seen him. Not only that, the inscription on his cross... ...was done in three languages... ...in Latin, Aramaic, and Greek... ...as to show us, yes, he is in fact king of the Jews... ...but he is king of so much more than that. He is the king of all of creation... So here you have Jesus being lifted up for all to see with this sign declaring him king. It looks like Jesus is being lifted up on the cross by men, but he's actually being glorified by his father. It looks like mankind is killing the son of God, but the son of God is drawing all of mankind to himself. It looks like Satan is won, but Jesus is definitively throwing the prince of evil off his throne. And what I want us to see here is the what and the who that God is using, among other things, to accomplish his will. First, the what. The most valuable thing that there has ever been is the glory of God. In Isaiah, it says that we were created for his glory. If anyone ever asks you why were we created, For the glory of God. That's why we were created. Now, when we think of glory, it it, it can be very hard to understand. And and even to try to define it in a simple term is always going to come up short because it's a large term. I can tell you what a football is, but I can't tell you what glory is, right? I can tell you what a baseball is, but I can't really tell you what beauty is. It needs to be experienced. But, For tonight's purposes, what I want us to see, God's glory, is his public expression of who he is. God's glory is his public expression of who he is. The sunshine, the clouds, the stars, love, poetry, music, how he created us, the list goes on and on. But all of these point to the glory of God. Then we learn that in Jesus, all of the glory of God dwells bodily. And so literally, the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world is happening on this good Friday night in the crucifixion of Christ. The glory of God, the most valuable thing there has ever been, is being put to death. And yet, even through the worst thing that has ever happened, God is using it in a way that it's going to be the best thing that has ever happened. He is turning the worst thing into the best thing. Not only do we see what he is using, let's see who he is using through this. He is using people who are doing evil to accomplish his purposes, which are good. He is using the evil motives of Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the soldiers to accomplish his plan of redemption. Now, What's important to understand and to know in this is that God is not causing them to sin. He's not making them sin as to reduce the severity of sin, but he is using their sin for his purposes, which are good. God is, in part, using our sin to put an end to sin. He is using death to put an end to death. God's, God used our greatest enemy, death, to end our greatest threat, sin. Sin. There is nothing that is outside of God's control, and he uses his control for our good in his glory. Now, I am very much an imperfect father. I um, fail my kids more times than I would like to admit. However, I can confidently say, despite all the failings and all the failure, that I truly love my kids and I truly want the best for them. But sometimes the best for them is not exactly what they want. Sometimes I allow them to experience consequences that they really don't like. Sometimes I discipline them and do not allow them to do things that they really want or have things that they really want to have. There have been times where my children have been red hot mad at me. There have been times where it seems like I have just crushed all of their hopes and dreams. If you ever want to see mutiny, cancel movie and snack night because your kids have been disobedient all day, right? But the reason that I discipline my kids, the reason that I uh, allow them to experience consequences and allow them to experience negative things, is because I love them and I want the best for them. On a much larger scale, much larger, and in a perfect way, not a flawed way like me, this is much the way that God works in our lives. Now. What I don't want you to hear is that everything in your life is bad or a punishment or a discipline. That is not it. If you have a sickness that will not go away, that is not a punishment. That is not uh, something that God is doing to discipline you for something you've done. That's where my failings as a father don't compare with the way that God works. But rather, you have a loving father that uses everything in your life for good because he loves you. And he uses everything for the good of those who love him. So church, what this means for us is that there is absolutely nothing in our lives that God is not using for our good and for his glory. And I realize as those words come out of my mouth, many of you in this room just took a really hard swallow. And you just took a really hard swallow because you've experienced some significant pain in your lives. You've experienced pain that many of us in this room will will never understand. And you have a hard time reconciling God's sovereignty with his goodness because you've lost a child. Or... You lost a parent at a young age, and you you didn't have anyone around to show you the ropes. Or you've been abused by someone who is supposed to protect you. Or you're the victim of a a seemingly senseless and random act of violence or or bullying, or, or simply nothing ever seems to go the right way in your life. Or maybe you're just so discouraged because every time you look up, there's another shooting, another disaster, another reason to mourn, another reason to just, just cry your eyes out. And I would like to stand here tonight and give you all the, the intimate details of how God is working that for good and his glory in your life. I want to stand here and just unpack that for hours and hours of how God is doing that. But the truth is, I can't because I don't know. I don't know. And nobody outside of Jesus can tell you exactly how God is working through your significant pain for your good and for his glory. Yes, it's true that God is in control, and nothing happens outside of his active doing or allowing. And nothing that happens does not lead to his glory and your good. But in the between time, it can be just so difficult and, and debilitating trying to figure out how that is. Before Jesus went to the cross, he spent some time in this garden and he wept openly and bitterly. And he asked the Father, please take this cup from me. Take the wrath that you are about to pour out on me from me. This is Jesus. This is God. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And yet, he struggled mightily with what was about to happen. But, most importantly, he yielded to the will of the Father. And so I want to say, it's okay to struggle with this. It's okay to wrestle With this. When Jesus was buried, they did it with spices and oils. You know why? They didn't think he was going to raise from the dead. They thought he was going to stay there. That stuff that they used is so the smell didn't get bad. They thought he was going to be there and stay. You can wrestle, you can struggle with belief, you can ask God, How is anything good ever going to come from this? However, what I do want to point you to is this. Don't fall for the lie that anything else or anyone else will fully comfort you or come through for you. Only God will fully comfort you and be faithful to come through for you. Even when we don't see it, even when we can't see it, even when we can't imagine one day possibly Ever seeing it, he is in control, and he works for our good in his glory in all situations. Charles Spurgeon once said, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Okay, the second truth was God's sovereignty is comforting. My final truth is this, God's sovereignty is good news. Look with me at John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Once again, we see God show his sovereignty in this, state, in this statement. It says he gave up his spirit. Nobody took it from him. Church, let me tell you something. Jesus was not murdered. He gave his life up. Nobody took a thing from him that day. He gave everything. Jesus looks like a lamb being led to the slaughter, but what is going on underneath is he is a lion looking for his prey. And his prey is sin, death, and Satan. For thousands of years, we were alienated from God. Because of our sin, we could not approach him. We had fallen short. We were made for his glory, and we fell short of that glory. The very thing that we were created to to do, that we were created for, we had we blew it so bad, we couldn't even fulfill the very thing we were created for. But instead of wiping us off the earth, he came to the earth and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He submitted the son to suffering that he didn't deserve, to suffering that only we deserved. But on that cross, God turned bad news into good. And church, this is what I want us to see here. God is not an an indifferent God he is not an uncaring God. He is not a God that just allows things to fall as they may. And there is no better example of this than the cross. When he said, it is finished. When he said, it was finished, those around him would have heard bad news. That everything he worked for and taught in the kingdom, he said he would usher in, it was finished. But when he said, it is finished, he meant something much much different than what they thought. His plan was much more glorious than anything the disciples and and followers of Christ could have imagined. He wasn't just delivering to them a temporal kingdom still under the rule of death, but an eternal kingdom where death has been defeated. Oh, church, the cross seemed only dark, but in reality it was also so, so bright. The darkness that is our sin is the reason for the cross. It is the reason for Jesus To need to be the substitute. The wrath of God was poured out onto his Son, in whom the whole glory of God dwelled. But the light is this. The light is this. that, That Jesus, what he finished was sin. What he finished was death. What he finished was pain and tears and wars and sickness and conflict. Jesus' death on the cross rid us of the penalty and the power of sin. When he returns, just like he said he would rise from the dead, and he did, he said he would return, and he will. When he returns, he will rid us of the presence of sin as well. Revelation 21.4 says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. That is not possible without the cross. And just as the disciples unknowingly waited for his resurrection a few days later, we knowingly wait for his return to do just what he said in Revelation 21.4. What is finished is your addiction, your cancer, your rebellious child, your pain from the loss of, of losing a close loved one the earthquake-like ripples from, from your sin or someone else's sin in your life. This has already been done and waits to be completed when he returns. And so, church, would the cross be confirmation for you? Would the cross be confirmation that God is sovereign and good? That he does, in fact, allow bad, but he works that bad into good for our sake and for his glory. That if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to. If you're in Christ, you can be confident that he is using all things, including the deepest pain that you have ever experienced to work for your good. When I was 18 years old, I surrendered my life to Jesus, making him my Lord. I realized my need for a savior and his sacrifice for me, from that day forward, Good Friday was no longer a, a religious service, but actually came to be good for me personally. The cross is more than a symbol. Jesus is more than a historical figure, because of what he did on this day almost two thousand years ago. I can have confidence that all of this pain, all of this sorrow, will one day be gone. One day, I, along with the rest of who call on the name of Jesus Christ, will experience the full glory of God without the presence of sin and death. And that everything he is doing in my life right now is preparing me for that day. And if you're here tonight and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. There is no work to be done before you do. There is no cleaning up of your life that you need to do before you come to Jesus. He did that work on the cross. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so tonight if you feel like God might be telling you to let go, to surrender, to believe that he is who he said he is, I would encourage you, after I'm done with this sermon, there's going to be a team of people in the back that would love to talk to you and pray with you, and they love to pray with you to receive Jesus as Lord.